Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. I follow the same template every week, so if you're new to the podcast, here's how it works. I tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it, what's it about, and of course where you can stream it if you'd like to watch it. I also answer three important questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar worthy? And should you watch it? Or is it a big fat waste of your precious time? As a friendly reminder, I do like to give my honest assessment of these movies, and I sometimes go off on tangents about current events. I like to rant about the things that irritate me, and I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. Around here, it's all about fussing and cussing, so please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is It Happened One Night. It was released February 22nd of 1934. It is directed by Frank Capra. It stars Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. It was nominated for a total of five Oscars, and it won all five of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. If you want to watch it, you will need to spend a few dollars and watch it on Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, Redbox, or Apple TV. So what is it about? It begins with Ellie Andrews, who's played by Claudette Colbert, engaging in a terrible argument with her rich and controlling father. We come to find out that he's basically holding her hostage on his yacht, She's done the worst thing a spoiled socialite and heir to his millions could possibly do. She's eloped with a man her father doesn't approve of. In fact, no one really understands what she sees in this guy. His name is King Wesley. And the general consensus of, like, everyone is that he's a faker, a poser who's just using her for her money. But Ellie swears they are in love and are destined to be together. That is, if she can ever escape her overbearing father. They are currently off the coast of Miami, and she has been forbidden from returning to her new husband in New York. Her rebellion consists of locking herself in her stateroom and refusing to eat anything. After they have a rip-roaring argument, during which her father tells her that she will get an annulment, Ellie does the one thing she can do to escape. She dives off the side of the yacht and makes a run for it. Well, she makes a swim for it, but you get the idea. And even though he has an enormous staff of employees and able-bodied sailors, none of them can manage to retrieve her from the water. Her father puts out word that Ellie is missing and immediately hires a detective agency to track her down. Ellie manages to make her way to a bus station in Miami. She had to sell what I imagine is a very expensive wristwatch 
to pay for a suitcase full of clothing. And since the station is being staked out by men hired by her father, Ellie gets someone else to buy her a ticket to New York. We're five minutes in, and I'm already really liking Ellie. She's ballsy, smart, and seems to have pretty decent survival skills. Spoiler alert, that doesn't last long. But at this point, we're very much Team Ellie. Also at the Miami bus station is Peter Warren, played by Clark Gable. He's on the payphone engaged in a drunken argument with a newspaper editor who is about to become his ex-boss. There's no love loss between these two, and each will tell the story as if it was he who told the other to take a hike. Naturally, these two will end up seated next to each other on a Greyhound bus headed for New York. It starts out a bit rough. She's not interested in engaging in conversation with any man who isn't her husband, and he chalks it up to her being an elitist who's too much of a brat to be friendly to him. And yes, he ends up calling her brat several times as the movie goes on. So no, this isn't love at first sight. As they are both getting fresh air at the first scheduled bus stop, Ellie gets robbed. Now that sounds far more dramatic than it really is. She has taken her suitcase off of the bus with her and it's on the ground right next to where she's standing. But as she's lighting up a cigarette, she doesn't notice a man just walk up and take it. She has zero awareness of her surroundings. Peter sees the theft from across the parking lot and tries to chase after the robber, to no avail. Believe it or not, this is a major plot point. That suitcase had all of her clothes and all of her money in it. So all she's left with is her bus ticket and $4 that was in her purse and they are still at least two days away from New York. This is about to get interesting, because Ellie's never had to rely on the kindness of strangers. Next is a 30-minute stop for breakfast in Jacksonville. Peter offers to have breakfast with her, but Ellie intends to travel across town to dine at a luxury hotel. She's a millionaire, after all, and she's not about to eat at a bus depot. Although she is told several times when to be back, Ellie arrives well after the bus has left and seems really put out that they didn't wait for her. She's like, schedule, schedule, don't you know who I am? As it turns out, Peter also missed the bus, but he did so intentionally because by this time, Ellie's father has plastered her face on the cover of every major newspaper and Peter has figured out how to use this to his advantage. He offers to help to get her to New York in secret if she promises to give him an exclusive story when they get there. He even goes as far as to send a cablegram to his former editor bragging that he has stumbled into the story of the century. He knows exactly where that runaway heiress is And he will be the one to tell the world about her quest to return to King Wesley, the love of her life. You may wonder why she hasn't contacted King or why he's not moving heaven and earth to find her. But put a pin in that. We'll talk about it later. After an eight hour wait spent mostly trying to stay dry in the rain, they get on the next bus out of Jacksonville. Ellie intentionally picks a seat away from Peter but immediately regrets it when this obnoxious man by the name of Shapely starts to aggressively hit on her. She tries to charm her way out of it, but it's clear this pig doesn't know how to take no for an answer. 
So here comes Peter to the rescue. He tells Shapely, Scram, that woman you're flirting with is my wife. And he plops down in the seat that Shapely vacates. It's been a hard day for Ellie. She's soaking wet with no change of clothes. She spent nearly all the money she had left. She has to deal with a crazy stalker dude. And now she has no option but to let Peter take over. An entire day of rain has wreaked havoc on the roads, and they are forced to pull over due to flooding. Peter checks them into a hotel room, but don't worry, this is 1934. So there are twin beds, and he immediately uses a blanket and some rope to divide the room in half, giving them each some privacy. You're going to ask yourself, what kind of sicko carries 10 feet of rope in his suitcase? But that question never gets answered. Peter gives Ellie a pair of pajamas and sends her to her side of what he calls the Wall of Jericho. He makes a point in this scene to let Ellie know he has zero interest in her outside of the story he's writing. And if she tries to take off on him, he'll call her father and turn her in. And although this scene doesn't get hot and steamy like one might hope, we do get to watch Clark Gable undress, and it's quite a sight. There's a quick scene where we see Ellie's father flying to New York to track her down. He's in constant contact with his team of detectives who are now spread out all up and down the East Coast, but no one can find her. As they are getting dressed and packed in the morning, there's a knock on the door. It's the hotel manager, and he has the police with him. They are looking for a missing woman. And this is a really great scene as it speaks to basic human psychology. The more awkward a situation is, the more quickly people will want to exit themselves from it. So as the police enter, they find Peter and Ellie in a yelling match. Just your average husband and wife airing some deep-seated grievances. But it's when Ellie starts to fake cry. And it's not a normal cry. It's a loud, off-key wail, kind of like, and the two of them keep arguing. At one point, Peter turns to the police and he says, oh, you're looking for a missing woman? Is she a good-for-nothing plumber's daughter? Because if so, here, you can have her, which only makes Ellie scream louder. And before you know it, the three men are backing out of the hotel room. Sorry, we must have the wrong room. They know there is no way that this screeching disaster of a woman is the sophisticated socialite they've been asked to find. And they apologize profusely for the interruption. This is one of those moments that would never work in real life, but it works perfectly in this movie. By now, Ellie's father is starting to get frantic. It's been three days and not a single sighting. He decides to announce a $10,000 reward. If you're wondering, that's roughly about $226,000 in today's money. He's also got several men still watching King Wesley, but are reporting back that he hasn't spoken to her either. Ellie is intentionally not reaching out to him because she knows he's being watched, and it will give away her location. Meanwhile... You got to admit, Ellie seems to be having fun on the run. She and Peter are back on board the bus. 
and there's a great deal of camaraderie happening among this group of traveling strangers. Men are standing up in the aisles, leading everyone in a sing-along. Laughter and joy all around. Until the bus driver loses focus and drives off the road, crashing into a small ditch. As they are exiting the bus, that creepy guy, Shapely, pulls Peter aside and shows him the newspaper with Ellie's photo on the cover. He tells Peter that he thinks they should turn her in and split the reward. Quick-thinking Peter turns the situation around on him. Peter pretends to be a violent, well-armed gangster who has kidnapped Ellie and will trade her for ransom when they get to New York. $10,000? No way. She's worth at least a million. He asks Shapely if he's armed because they need to be ready for a shootout when they arrive in New York. He's quite clever, that Peter. And it works. Shapely's like, oh, oh, uh, never mind. I, that sounds a little too advanced for me. So let's just pretend we never had this conversation. You go do your thing and I'm going to keep my mouth shut about the girl. Works like a charm. There's a woman on the bus who has fallen ill. Her son tells Ellie it's because they haven't eaten in days. And without really thinking clearly, Ellie grabs the cash from Peter's hand and hands it to the boy, not realizing that was the very last of their money. Another plot twist. Now they are both broke and the bus is in a ditch. And how the hell are they going to get to New York? Peter knows that if Shapely saw the newspaper, everyone else did too. He decides they should separate from the rest of the passengers and set out on foot. They do the old over the river and through the woods bit until it's dark and they can't walk anymore. That night, they are forced to sleep in a field on beds made from piles of hay. Ellie complains about being desperately hungry, but not hungry enough to eat the carrots that he has picked for them. I guess he must have stolen them from a local farm, but they don't ever explain that one either. The next day, Peter decides to try their luck at hitchhiking. If you ask people what they remember most about this movie, my guess is they will say it's this scene. And by the way, it was quite scandalous for the time. Peter is the hitchhiking expert. Stand back and watch me do it, he says, full of confidence. He even has a combination of different foolproof styles, as if there's a secret code he's expressing to the drivers as they pass. And that's exactly what they do, is pass. There's a shocking number of cars that suddenly drive past all in a row. It's as if they've wandered smack dab into a funeral procession. But as the final car speeds by, they both come to realize that Peter's foolproof technique pretty much sucks. That's when Ellie walks to the edge of the road, hikes up her skirt to reveal her shapely thigh. And voila! The very next passing car slams on its brakes and anxiously picks them up. That's when Ellie says her most famous line. Well, I proved once and for all that the limb is mightier than the thumb. Just a little bit of trivia here. The driver of the car, a man named Danker, is played by a young Alan Hale. You know him. He played the skipper on Gilligan's Island. And wouldn't it figure... This nice man turns out to be a thief. At the next rest stop, as Peter and Ellie are stretching their legs, 
Danker tries to take off with Peter's luggage. Now, this Peter, he's a lot of things. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He's funny and smart and protective. And he always seems to carry 10 feet of rope everywhere he goes. But as luck would have it, he can also run down a speeding car. Mm Mm-hmm, he sure can. And before you know it, Peter returns in Danker's car without Danker. Now they have transportation, but they are low on gas and they don't have any money. They are only three hours from New York, but suddenly Ellie isn't in much of a hurry. She insists they stop for the night and get a fresh start in the morning. Peter talks a hotel owner into letting them have a room, and it's there that Ellie confesses her love to Peter. It's a big, dramatic scene with lots of emotion and plenty of tears. Let's run away together, Peter, anywhere you want to go, as long as we're together. He politely dismisses her, probably because she's married to another man, and he sends her back over to her side of the room where she cries herself to sleep. But it's got Peter thinking. He has no money, so how on earth could he promise to be with Ellie when he doesn't have a dime to his name? So he comes up with a plan. While she's sleeping, he'll drive the three hours into New York. He'll meet his former newspaper editor, type up the story he promised him, and in exchange, the editor will give him $1,000. He will drive the three hours back to Ellie, confess his love, and they will run away together. The first part works out okay. Peter sells his suitcase full of belongings to pay for gas, and as predicted, His editor is quick to give him some cash. But after he left, the hotel owner noticed the car was gone and assumed they had taken off in the middle of the night. He enters the room and finds Ellie sleeping. When she hears that Peter has left without her and taken the car, she has no option but to call her father. She assumes that Peter does not feel the same way about her. So she has her father and her husband come to get her. Peter is shocked when he sees her on the road in a car headed in the opposite direction. Peter then comes to the conclusion that she was using him all this time, and when he finally ran out of money, she called her rich father to come get her. Both of them are heartbroken, sure that the other one has rejected them. Now that Ellie is reunited with King, her father insists they have a real wedding in a church, And it's hard to tell for sure, but it appears that it's taking place in just a couple of days. She must have one hell of a wedding planner. Peter returns to the newspaper and tells his editor it was all a joke. The story they were going to publish about Peter and Ellie's runaway romance isn't true. And he gave the thousand dollars back. Ellie is miserable. She's hours away from walking down the aisle, and she can't even crack a smile. She finally confesses to her father that she's in love with another man. She'll go through with the wedding as planned, so there's no more embarrassment brought to their family. But it's apparent the king is not the love of her life, like she once believed. Her father mentions that he did receive a note from Peter. It was short and sweet. Peter was talking about being paid. Ellie now convinced that Peter was trying to cash in on the $10,000 reward, is really pissed off. She's convinced he was after the money all along, 
all the more reason for her to marry King and put this whole unfortunate situation behind her. But guess what? When her father meets with Peter just minutes before the wedding, it's discovered that Peter was only asking for $39.60 to reimburse him for his suitcase full of clothes that he sold for gas money. It's not even about the money, he admits. He just feels as if he was played for a fool the entire time, and the father should do the right thing and pay him back for his belongings. We can all see that we're in the middle of this cute little romantic mix-up. Ellie's father asks Peter if he's in love with his daughter, and Peter admits that he is. Now dear old dad knows exactly what to do. As he's walking Ellie down the aisle, he tells her that Peter didn't ask for the reward money, that he loves Ellie, and if she were smart, she'd hightail it out of there using the car that he has parked outside the back door of the church. And you guessed it, she does it, runaway bride style. Her father pays King Wesley $100,000, so he will agree to annul their previous marriage, and she's free to be with Peter. And for the first time, they will get to sleep in a room without the wall of Jericho in between them. Question one, does it happen one night stand the test of time? Well, one part of this really does, and that's the theme. This is a very common kind of cookie cutter romance that we see all the time. Two people who can't stand each other until there's 10 minutes left in the movie when they suddenly realize they are in love. And here's how I know that that is a time-tested theme. I watched this movie while I was visiting my mom last weekend, and I really enjoyed it. But I admit that I sometimes multitask when I'm watching these movies. So when I noticed that Delta was offering it on the plane coming home, I watched it for a second time to catch all the things I might have missed. Now, as I'm watching again, I'm thinking, my God, these two just argue all the time. How are we supposed to believe they fall in love? But then I look across the aisle and I see the person across from me is watching the movie You've Got Mail, the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan classic. It was a dude watching it, by the way, not that there's anything wrong with that. But I stared at his screen for a minute as it came to me. It's the exact same thing. Two people spend the entire movie arguing, sabotaging each other, talking shit to their friends about how much they hate each other until literally the last scene when they admit they are in love. Two movies released 34 years apart, yet the context was basically the same. It's a formula that works, and it will continue to be one of the more popular ways romance is portrayed for years to come. On the other hand, there are some problematic parts. Let me just say first that Peter Warren is a delightful character, and you can't help but fall for him like Ellie does. But he does have some moments of toxic masculinity that, in all honesty, they don't even seem to match who he is. They just seem to come out of nowhere. There's no less than three times where he tells her to shut up. Not because she's speaking out of turn. I think he's just tired of the sound of her voice. He just suddenly gets this really intense look on his face, and he's like, shut up. And at one point, he even casually threatens to hit her. I think he uses the term, I'll 
box you or bonk you. She knows what it means. And you see her immediately stop talking and sort of recoil from him out of fear that he'll do it. It's really strange because he's a total gentleman in every other way. And then suddenly these moments happen and you're thinking, where the hell did that come from? Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Oh my God, yes. This is only one of three movies in history that has swept the top five Oscar categories, which are best picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. I've already done episodes for the other two. They are One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Silence of the Lambs. We're talking 1934, 1975, and 1991, and it has not happened since then. There were a lot of other movies nominated that year. This is going to take a minute. You may want to go grab a snack. They are The Barretts of Wimpole Street, Cleopatra, Flirtation Walk, The Gay Divorcee, Here Comes the Navy, The House of Rothschild, Imitation of Life, One Night of Love, The Thin Man, Viva Vila, and The White Parade. This is 1934, so I feel like they may have just nominated all the movies made that year. Claudette Colbert was convinced this movie was not going to be a hit. After filming Wrapped, she told a friend that she had just finished the worst picture in the world. Although nominated for Best Actress, she didn't even go to the ceremony. After she was named the winner, the studio head sent someone to pick her up at the train station as she was about to depart on a cross-country trip. Claudette arrived to accept her award in a two-piece traveling suit. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, please do. I think it's terrific. It has been widely hailed as one of the greatest films ever made. In 1993, it was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, being deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It is on several of the American Film Institute's lists of bests, including number 35 on the top 100 movies list and number three on the top 10 romantic comedy list. It's a really good movie for you to watch, very enjoyable. And if for no other reason, it's two hours of Clark Gable. I promise you, it's worth it. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 32 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or you just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of the freemusicarchives.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thank you, and see you next week.